what the heck is up with these bananas? <laughs> I got no idea about the bananas. <laughs> I mean, like. <laughs> Everyone, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are absolutely delighted that you are here with us again and for the last time in Monologue Month. Yeah, no, don't nobody worry. Worries. We're not going to It's fine. It's not we'll be all right. It's okay. <laughs> Just the last week of this whole month, the month of October 2020, in our season five, that we have been spending talking about one-person plays. Yes, we've been uh, enjoying the genre of single-person plays for for the last three weeks, going across a bunch of different genres of plays. We had a a fairly like imaginative play um, that that uh, brought in a a, a a very robust concept and uh, and robust characters as well. We had a very historical one-person play that was into the realm of kind of autobiography or bio- biography of the character. We had a very political uh, one-person show last week. Week that took us on a broad sweeping journey through 200 years of American history. And now we are going to history again, but in a different fashion. That's right. This is a work of fiction that we are talking about today. So it is a nod to, I guess it's not really a nod, but in the same way that the first week was a fiction play, this is a piece of work of fiction. The two other scripts that we did in the middle were both works of nonfiction. So we're back to something made up from the brain of a playwright. And in this case, the brain of one of the playwrights. Not just a playwright, but one of the playwrights. Right, right. If if you're doing any sort of like theater history, surely, surely this actor is going to come up. It's so he. <laughs> this actor is so prominent that his predecessors were in his plays. We are talking about. <laughs> we, we are talking about Samuel Beckett. Yes, it is the first time for Mr. Beckett on our show, and you know what? There's just we we're intimidated by Samuel Beckett. That's that's what it is. Yeah, folks. let's just let's just say it right it, up front. It, yeah, trying to talk about a Beckett play is like walking into a very dark forest filled with nettles and uh, <laughs> walking in naked and blindfolded. You know, it's just right. It, it, it's a mess. And uh, not that the plays are a mess, but conversations about them notoriously are. And right. So <laughs> it's all the way to season five before we've gotten to them, but we couldn't do a one-person show themed month, having never talked about a Beckett play, without talking about Crap's last tape. It just wasn't possible. It just wasn't possible, and thus here we are. We will be talking about Crap's last tape this week, which I'm actually super excited to talk about. It, it is a really rich play, as I mean, as kind of. Uh, uh, confusing at times as Beckett can be. I think there's a lot of really deep, rich themes to get into in this in this one-person show to kind of wrap up our month. Yeah, I, compared to a lot of Beckett scripts, Craps Last Tape <laughs> is really accessible. I mean, right. really accessible. There's like yeah. a plot that you can definitely <laughs> follow going Maybe. in. There's like given <laughs> circumstances that you, the uh-huh. actor can like live in. I mean, it is really accessible compared to many other Beckett scripts. The the action of the play is not in itself very metaphoric, like in Endgame, the setting, right. the reality of the world. So lots of reasons why 
were excited to talk about Crap's last tape uh, beyond just finishing out our monologue month. But before we hop into the conversation, which is coming up, first we want to ask you to head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That is our Patreon page where you can become a patron and support the show. We're blessed to have lots of great patrons whose support makes doing the show feasible for us because the show is not free to produce. It Money has to go in to making the show as well as a huge amount of time to produce an hour-long weekly podcast. So given everything that we've got to put in, it wouldn't be possible to do the show without support from our patrons. If you're not a patron yet, we really want to encourage you to think about it. You can go to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. You can see the monthly tiers. You choose a monthly tier. That's how much, uh, you know, Patreon will automatically donate for you, you know, from your account every month. The lowest amount is just a dollar a month. And as we frequently say, if you don't feel like your time with us is worth a dollar a month, we'd like to hear from you for a different reason, which is that we need to do a better job, and we want to hear what <laughs> advice and suggestions you have to improve the show. But hopefully you feel like you're getting at least that dollar a month. So please consider giving at least that dollar a month to support the run of the show. There are other tiers that go up higher than that. Everybody who's a patron of the show can gets access to the Patreon page where we post about other art that's inspiring to us. And then, of course, we give our patrons the first look at what scripts are coming up on the show. Everybody else gets to find out in the middle of the week before. Patrons get to find out ways before that. Uh, so please consider supporting us. If you are a patron already, huge, huge, huge thank you. Honestly, this show could not be without you. So thank you so much. And now back to the script. Back to the script. Here we go. We're jumping in. So um, if for some reason you've been living under a theater rock and have not heard of uh, Samuel Beckett before, um, he's uh, he's an Irish playwright who spent most of his career writing in France and wrote in both of those languages um, throughout his career. Uh, he's an Irish novelist, playwright, short story writer, theater director, poet, and literary translator, um, and and uh, was a part of the theater of the absurd. He's one of the main uh, early figures of the theater of the absurd. As it was developing in the in the 20th century. Crap's last tape was first produced um, in 1958 at the Royal Court Theater, and it was actually written for a specific actor. Um, the first time the the first title of the play during workshops was uh, McGee monologue, and uh, the the actor's name is Patrick McGee, who uh, uh, Beckett heard reading on the radio on on the BBC, and he was like, "This voice is incredible," um, I, and and so he wrote wrote the play somewhat around the idea of Patrick McGee's voice in his head. Yeah, as you'll see when we get to the plot synopsis, hearing his voice on the radio as the inspiration for the show is a huge part of what happens in the show. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, the play has been done. Uh, the, the play I won't I won't give away too much of the of the plot itself, but the the one actor in it and the one character, which is a difference from the the other <laughs> plays that we've done so far this month, um, is is an older man. He's sixty nine years old, um, and uh, so so this is this play has become uh, somewhat of a you know it's it's one of those roles that you you save up for and look forward to as an as an older. actor. 
actor. So Donald Davis was in this production uh, in 1960 at the Provincetown Playhouse. So when when the play came over to the States, um, it was there. And then David Kelly was a name that I noticed in 1996. He played uh, crap. And David Kelly, uh, if you know the the Waking Ned Divine, the movie, he's he's uh, he's he's the the friend of 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 the main character. So so there's a little bit of, a little bit of trivia for you there too. A lot of times uh, the, the play was kind of written with an Irish person in mind. So a lot of times Irish actors look forward to playing this role. Um, and and the play continues to be done. In 2011, it was done. 2006, it was done. And that 2006 production was actually Harold Pinter, who uh, who himself is is very well known for the theater of, of the absurd. So an often done play, a play that is kind of saved up for and then uh, delivered by by uh, more mature actors as they as they in, uh, in inhabit the role of of crap in this play. Yeah. I am about to try to give the synopsis of this show. And as the first of us that has to give a synopsis of a Beckett play, <laughs> I'm just so pleased that it's Crap's Last Tape. <laughs> of course, uh-huh. Beckett, famous for plays like Waiting for Godot, Endgame, notoriously uh, hard-to-pin-down plays. But in this case, as we teased before the Patreon plug, this show actually has a like a real plot and a character pursuing something that it, at the end of it all something happens. I mean it's it's much more accessible, much more sort of standard drama than a lot of the other Beckett fare. So synopsizing this actually isn't too bad. Uh, Crap, as Jackson said, is an older gentleman. He is the play takes place entirely in his den and it is entirely within you know the the thirty minutes or whatever how long however long the show takes. There's no scene breaks. No skips in time. Uh, This play, beginning to end, happens beginning to end with him on stage. The story. And so the story, as much of it as there is, is that Crap is uh, listening to tapes of himself. We learn through listening through several tapes that he has made. It's a little unclear whether this is like daily uh, audio journals or audio journals at sort of specific important moments in his life. Um, regardless, he has this fairly significant collection of audio journals. And the the play that we see on stage is old man crap playing on a tape recorder, several different tapes from his life. Um, different things happen to him and he, the stories he tells in those tapes. The story of old man crap, who's the one on stage, is not much more than that. He listens, he reacts, a couple times he eats a banana. Uh, so some, some stuff like that happens. He's an alcoholic, so he's, he's drinking, he's getting more and more constantly drunk. And then towards the end of the play, he makes a recording of his own. Another piece to add to this collection of audio journals. That's really what happens plot-wise in the show. Um, Going into a little more detail than that, you discover that these audio journals, at least the ones that we hear, are... um, he, he, he looks back at these sort of highlighting moments in his life. Uh, the character both in the past and crap, old man crap in the present, reflect on moments where his life could have gone differently, where his life was good and now isn't, or things like that. This is a very sad play. In fact, oh, yeah. earlier today I texted Jackson, this play <laughs> is so much more depressing than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a sad play. It's, it's about memory loss. It's about lost history it's about dreams realized or unrealized yes 
yes, loneliness and and trying to hold on to things. Um, so so yeah, it's it's a play laden with these these big big weighty moments of memory. And and as Jackson said, and then as you probably picked up from the synopsis, this play is probably the most different of any of the scripts in Monologue Month that we've looked at so far because there is one actor and one character. Um, in The Search for Signs of Intelligence Life in the Universe, there's one central character who has beamed different personalities and different lives that she lives for moments. So there's many different characters. In uh, I Am My Own Wife, it's a character study about one human, Charlotte von Malsdorf. But in order to tell that story, the solo actor in the show plays many, many, many different characters, including the playwright Doug Wright, uh, et, et cetera. And last week's show, House Arrest, is a historical sweep through the years that involves such characters as Thomas Jefferson, George Stephanopoulos, Bill Clinton, uh, various museum guides, all real humans, and what we are hearing are either interviews or historical documents. This This is a play about and only featuring crap. Right. And, and 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 just just so that I can get it out of my head, we should spell that real quick for those yeah, of you who right. didn't look at the title. It's K R A P P. In the English, it's a there's a pun there, right? There's a double right. entendre. I don't believe that that pun was intentional. I don't believe it exists in the other languages. But in English, I mean, he's got kind of a crampy life. So yeah, that's, that's true. There's a there's a pun, there's a definite pun there. It works out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to tie back to what you were saying, though, that this is a this is a play with one character on stage, one character in it, and yet there is this kind of sense that there are two. There is this. Three, there is this. Really, he's got. Three, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's true to to have the perspective of his 39-year-old self reflecting on his 20-year-old self, and, and the 69-year-old self is listening to the 39-year-old self. Um, that's, I mean, the, the, there are in effect three characters, and they are so, dis- especially the thirty-nine-year-old self and the sixty-nine-year-old self are so distinctly different. The person on the tape bears very little resemblance to the crap that we see in this, in this, in this play. Uh, the the old old man crap is is having a tough time. <laughs> he's having a rough go of it, and he's trying to remember parts of himself from this old recording. And what are some things that we know? that exist in the given circumstances of old man crap's life. And and it's worth noting that Jackson and I are not inventing this language of the various ages of crap. Uh, lots of theorists and writers speak about the play in the same way, that there's an old man crap, there's a middle-aged crap, and there's a young crap that all, in some way or another, are part of this play. Now, only one exists on stage, and they are all the same human being, but that human being at different points in time. The younger two, we only get through the recordings. But what do we know about old man crap? That, I mean, he, uh, frankly, of the three craps, we learn the most about his life going on just by virtue of getting to see him in his environs outside of uh, him telling a story or making a reflection in an audio recording. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned some of the things. We we know that he's alone. We know that he um is is kind of on his own in his apartment. Uh, uh, and and frequently kind of uses these tapes to listen back to record new ones. Sometimes, usually at like auspicious moments. Um, at least the the first tape starts out on his birthday. The thirty nine year old uh is is on his birthday. And uh, you could you could make the assumption that today is his birthday because he says 30 years ago. Um, if you wanted to be like really sad about it, you could say that today is his birthday and he's looking back at, at his 39 year old self. Right. That, and that's a big question, because that's what we don't really know is how frequently these audio recordings are made. Is this a yearly birthday tradition? Right. We, don't know. we know that the middle-aged crap, the 39-year-old crap, whose audio recordings are the bulk of the tapes that we hear as the audience, that that recording was indeed made on his birthday. We know, yeah, we do know that. And we know that it was definitely not the last recording because it's in box three, real five. And he goes through a bunch of boxes. Uh, the, the named box that he has is up to nine. But uh, however many boxes the character carries out, there's a lot more reels to his life. Um, so, so we know that this is a tradition of his that he keeps up. We know he's a writer. We know that, um, he, he, he writes books. We know that his last book didn't really go all that well. He sold something like 12 copies and most of them he says are to, uh, foreign libraries so that, so that they just have them in the collection. Um, and, and so he's, he's, we know that he's grappling with, um, uh, a lack of purpose and vocation in that way that his writing is not turning out for him. Uh, we know he's an alcoholic. He goes off stage, uh, I mean, probably every three to four minutes right. and uh, takes a drink. It is interesting that those drinks are all off stage, and that'll be something that we can reflect on. We know that he has some sort of stomach condition um, that has been ongoing through his life and that despite Despite the stomach condition, he eats a lot of bananas, which would be bad for whatever the stomach condition is, but he's like, he compulsively eats bananas. Right. It, we see him eat a full banana on stage, take a second one out to begin eating, and choose not to eat it at that moment, though he keeps it in his pocket for the rest of the play <laughs> right. on stage. Yeah. But the 39-year-old, the, the middle-aged crap that we get a recording of, said like he ate three bananas and managed to stop himself from eating a fourth. Manage right. to have that self-control. Yeah, so, so for some reason he loves loves bananas. <laughs> Just can't get enough of them. Um, and uh, we we know we know a lot via via what we know about thirty nine year old self. Um, uh, because because the way thirty nine year old self talks. Um, the 39 year old self talks kind of pompously, great vocabulary, um, reflects meaningfully on his experiences and in his last year as it's his birthday. Um, he, he has these kind of grandiose thoughts, big analogies around like storms and lighthouses and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and uses words that, uh, old man crap doesn't know. There's a distinct scene where he has to go and get his dictionary to understand his past self. Right, right, right. Now, isn't that fascinating, right? That that Beckett has written a character who, as a 39-year-old, made an audio recording, one of many, where he uses a word that all these years later he doesn't know enough that he has to go look it up. Right. Uh, what? What the heck? That is that is incredible mystery that surrounds that. And speaking of mystery, we know he's got an envelope in his pocket 
which he destroys at some point, especially when he's in, a, in a, an especially emotional reaction to, to, to the tape. He ends up destroying this thing that he's got in the envelope. But we don't ever know what that is. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a little bit of a of a mystery as to what it is, whether it's a letter to be sent or whether he's taken notes. In one of his recordings, he talks about being by a fireplace and and uh, taking notes on an envelope. Um, so so that so that's a uh, yeah, it, it's a kind of a question mark as to what that prop is for and what he's what he's held on to it for. And we know that he is the kind of person who spends. Hours and hours in a dark basement lit by a single bulb. And that's just a reflection on the given circumstance of that that being his life. But that does tell you something about the human. It does. Yeah. No, he's, he's certainly like, and, 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 and I believe I, I watched a version of this on YouTube. You can go on YouTube and see like three or four different versions if you wanted to. Cause again, this is a very storied production. The BBC has recorded a number of different recordings of it. It's a very uh, important play in theater history. Um, and, and what the various actors do with big sections of stage directions and non-spoken uh, acting moments really flavor the role. Um, how, how, how crazy do you think, uh, crap is, is, is really dependent on the individual productions. Um, so, uh, some versions that I've that you see, he's, he's just like kind of having a hard time holding on to things and, and it's slipping from him. It's clear that it's slipping from him. Others, he's like cradling the recorder as it's speaking to him. So, so these sorts of decisions that actors make and, and directors make, uh, affect what we, what we see of crap as well. Yeah. And we know about this darkness and this bulb because 39-year-old crap reflects on the fact that he just put this light in to this den and it's made it so much better. And so the other thing that that tells us is crap's life has not much changed in the past 30 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, thirty. Despite the fact that he ends his recording at the at towards the end of end of the play, we hear the end of the recording with this. He says he has this fire in him. You see, you get the sense that he's sensing good things on the horizon. That he's going to kind of move and shake things. And yet, not a lot has changed <laughs> uh, for for him in that time. So. How do, where do we start into all that, Jackson? I mean, there's right. We've just discussed. We've just sort of walked through so many of the great mysteries, the great uh, dramatic actions, the the great oddities that make Beckett who he is and make Crap's Last Tape what it is. Should we start at the? Should we start with the bananas? I mean, that's <laughs> that's the first of the big questions about this play, right? <laughs> What the heck is up with these bananas? <laughs> I got no idea about the bananas. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, certainly there's a, a a moment of the absurd in that. You know, I, I'm, it I'm, is I'm, definitely I'm, absurd. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm reminded of like kind of Brechtian tactics of uh, asking the audience to disassociate from whatever they're expecting this play to be. Um, and if the first scene is him kind of pulling out a banana and eating it in front of them, that says a whole new expectation for how my night is going to go when I go to this play. <laughs> so lots of people think about uh, Crap's Last Tape in 
in terms of some of what Beckett comments on about mechanization and, and about society becoming increasingly mechanized, I mean, if you think back to when this play was written, the idea of writing a piece of drama about listening to yourself on tape is a fascinating new idea when the play comes out, to respond to recordings of yourself. Now, of our uh, four plays of Monologue Month, uh, three of the four involve recordings in some way. I Am My Own Wife involves recordings of Charlotte von Malsdorf at the end. Uh, House Arrest calls for the interview scenes to be conducted via rec- the interviewer is a recording and the actor only plays the interviewee. And now this play, of course, being the sort of pinnacle example of using recordings to help fill in something like dialogue and response in, in uh, by use of recordings. But this is also the oldest of the group. This idea is, is, would have been incredibly new at the time and, and an incredibly sharp commentary on the way that the, the fact that something like this is possible to listen to yourself, respond to yourself, have these sort of audio recordings of your life. I wonder if there's a kind of, uh, the, I wonder if part of the commentary that it's talking about then is is around this theme of when you form yourself based on a frozen version of yourself, how you never change. Um, and 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 so so the thirty nine year old crap comments on his twenty year old self in in kind of disgust. He's like, oh, the kind of the idealism of that twenty year old self, blah 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 blah. And he, he kind of goes through the whole thing. And and one of the heartbreaking things is the the tape that old man crap eventually ends up recording is. I mean, we've we've just watched him for the last like twenty to forty five minutes, depending on your blocking, um, and 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 we know that he's 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 not all there anymore. And yet, when he sits down, he copies himself almost almost uh, perfectly, yet brokenly. So he he critiques his thirty nine year old self. Thank goodness I'm done listening to him. His thirty nine year old self talks about Jesus at one point, and 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 his sixty nine year old self. Uh, knows that he's supposed to talk about Jesus, but he can't like figure out too much more than just the word, and he holds on to the word for a little while and and kind of mulls it over. Um, and he and he knows that he's supposed to talk about this. We got to get to the kind of really uh, romantic description of of uh, of like thirty year old crap on in in the boat and the lake. Um, he knows that he wants to talk about that to some degree, which forces him back to the tape again because he can't remember it. He can't remember the instance, and so he has to go back to the tape. So uh, th- part of the commentary is, I think, talking about if we if we're constant if we're not reinventing ourselves, if we're not living in the moment, but always looking to the past, looking to recordings of ourselves, and and setting ourselves based on that, maybe we never grow. And, and how the mechanization of human life contributes to that reality for people. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure that Beckett was specifically commenting on the technology, but the way in which human life is increasingly becoming repetitive. And in that way, opening the play with these very mechanized movements of eating the banana. The banana eating is not just like, I mean, so- some playwrights would have just written, crap enters and eats a banana. 
Right? right, but that's not what Beckett. Beckett writes these careful descriptions of how he enters, pulls keys, searches through doors, comes to the front of the audience, meticulously peels the banana, puts the banana into his mouth, and holds it there, frozen for a second or two. Drops the peel to the floor, marches back and forth while eating the banana, nearly slips. I mean, it goes on and on, and then the second banana comes out, and the same thing ensues. In this case, with a different result, and you. You talk about Crap's actions, the old man Crap's actions being sort of a broken echo, a broken attempt to repeat young man Crap's actions. Well, it is interesting, of course, that old man Crap cannot eat as many bananas as young man Crap <laughs> did, right? No. Maybe That's he true. eats four over the course of the night. I don't know. But in the little <laughs> snippet that we get, he gets one down, but that's it. Right. Something yeah, something's changed. He can keep up with his 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 younger self, which is consistent throughout throughout the that whole scene. He can't he can't keep up with the descriptions that his younger self is talking about, the stories or the thought processes that he's talking about. Um and 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 the banana is a kind of a precursor of those things, though we don't know it yet. So <laughs> you mentioned the the romantic um, descriptions and, and of course that is so much of what this play is is this story that 39 year old crap tells via the recording and old man crap reflects on um it it is unclear we don't know why crap is listening to this tape this night um but i do think it might be important um, because there's maybe some options, right? It's possible that old man crap has been looking through audio recordings for this story. And this play happens now. The urgency, the now, is that he has finally found it. And this story is going to impact him somehow, as we see on the stage. But I also think it's equally possible, in an interesting alternate version of the story, that he's just been listening through them chronologically, and this is the time that he finds this story. And so that's why we see this play now, is this is the tape as he goes through them that's going to impact him somehow. We know that he's got written descriptions of the tapes. He's got a ledger, and he opens this one uh, because his ledger says to for some reason whether that's because he finally found the note that he wanted to to listen to this tape or he's listening through them and this is the final note there's several notes about what's on the tape that he reads out loud before he listens to it and just before listening to his 39 year old tape this is the final note Uh, prepare to break your heart right (laughs) farewell to love yeah oof yeah and 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 the the story is this this kind of touching story this you know like idyllic vacation moment where he's with uh, he's with a woman and they're on this boat together they're in various degrees of undress and um just kind of talking to each other on the boat and this this kind of idealized relaxing in the boat letting the waves take them to wherever it it, it might be it might take them to and letting the they didn't move at all. I think is the, I'll actually just read the line because it is it is a pretty um, touching line that 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 ends up repeating itself often. Um, we drifted in among the flags and stuck. Um, we lay there without moving, but under us all moved and moved us gently up and down and from side to side. 
So it's this, it's this visceral memory moment. It's a touchstone memory moment. And if you, for me, this is, this play is somewhat about memory and memory loss. And it, and, and, and this sort of a moment that has a tangible, memorable feeling, um, I think kind of cues you into that. Like I remembered where the story is and I want to experience it again because crap goes to the story and plays, finds it eventually after some frustration of listening to himself and then rewinds it and listens to it again. Then he starts his own recording and then he has to stop and uh, listen to it a third time. So it's it's clear that this recording bears some uh, uh, touchstone for him in his memory. Right, and that's the moment that you just described to me is one of the more fascinating moments of the play. As he's listening through this tape, he starts to skip ahead. And he only stops skipping ahead when he comes across this beautiful, flowery-languaged story of him and this young woman in this boat. And again, that question, and it's really a question for the actor and the director to imagine together, that question comes up, and it's really the same question as with the tapes. Was he looking for that story and found it and wants to listen to it, or did he stumble upon that story and it sparks in him the desire to relive it through the, ver- through the tape, through his own reflections afterwards? And that's the same thing that I just described with the tape itself, right? Was he looking for this particular tape or did he stumble upon this particular tape? That, I mean, that, and I don't think we have any real clue either way. You don't. Yeah, you don't. You don't really have like a, you, you definitely don't have like sound evidence either way. Um, you have enough for an actor to make decisions, but not one that excludes the other. I don't think I think you're describing the 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 open circumstances of this play pretty well. And that and maybe that's part of why so many actors continue to come to this role is there's so many decisions to be made. You get to kind of craft crap into whatever you want him to be not whatever you want him to be to a number of things that he could be the the scene before that kind of gives me a little bit of leaning into it is the part that he fast forwards is a moment of clarity for his 39 year old self you know and 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 over and over the lines kind of end with um let's see um what I suddenly saw then was this that the belief I had been going on all my life namely and it's fast forwarded uh, <laughs> it became clear to me at last that the dark I'd always been struggled to keep under is in reality my most, and he fast forwards after that. So these moments where his last self was finding clarity from intellect um, and 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 meaningful moments, he fast forwards. And and as an audience member, especially in reading it, when you have a moment to kind of assess those those moments and realize what he's fast forwarding, I go, but wait. Maybe this is the clarity you need. Maybe this is the thing that can wake you up, that can help you find whatever it was you were looking for. And he's fast-forwarding that to get to this story of a tangible, romantic memory. And a a moment of real human connection. I mean, I think think even more than the fact that it's a sex story, even more than the fact that it's a romantic love story— there's a connection to the story. I, I think you, when you were quoting it, I actually think you started a line too too late because the line just before the line that you started reading is, "I asked her to look me look at me, and after a few moments, after a few moments, she did, but the eyes just slits because of the glare. I bent over f- her to get them in the shadow, and they opened, let me in." We drifted among the flags and stuck, and he goes on to her breasts and his hands on her and, and all of that. <laughs> but the the moment— <laughs> You know, all that. Well, you know, uh, all that. 
But the moment where her eyes open and let him in is so brilliantly written as a moment of... Uh, it's uh, it's highlighted by the fact that it initially doesn't work. In the narrative storytelling, he asks her to look at her and her eyes open, but only a little bit because of the sun. So he has to lean over and then they open fully and let him in. And by that first hesitation where it doesn't work because of the sun, the writer Samuel Beckett, in his writing of this story, highlights the successful second attempt. And, And to me, that makes that moment so important because we can see the writer work to highlight the moment where her eyes open and he says, let him in mm-hmm. yeah no it's it's a, it is an incredible moment of of and, and it's all and it's all the amazing thing is that we're not talking about something that you see we're talking about something that you hear um and and that and that that heard storytelling this past um is being told all in such stark contrast to the being that you see in front of you who the 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 version that I saw I watched the Patrick McGee one the original actor to do to do it and during this scene he is staring unblinkingly for a very long time while this is playing like he doesn't blink at all so so to have the his his gaze his gaze like open and out kind of out listening to this 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 moment where he's asking this woman to look him in the eyes as well like you have you have to think about that too when you're reading the script is what what the actor is doing as these as the beautiful description of of kind of opening her eyes and letting him in is happening he's he's kind of desperately holding his eyes open waiting waiting to be let in somewhere right yeah i mean the the incredible visual impact of this play is the drama of listening what does yeah. old man crap do while listening and how does what he's listening to so juxtapose itself with the visual image of solitary lonely old man crap in the gloom how do those things interact and conflict you know another great historic theater moment that involves voice recordings is of course that horrible scene in death of a salesman where willie loman is in his boss's office he's stuck alone there and he he does the little tape recorder thing that his boss has just gotten and recorded all those holiday things with his kids and Willie Loman can't get it to stop. In fact, he thinks it's broken and it plays over and over and it causes him to collapse and and, and all of that. And in that instance, the moment is entirely about Willie Loman and zero about the recording. Anything could be playing on that recording. Uh, Arthur Miller wrote something, and that something is fine, but it doesn't matter what it is. It's all about the character Willie Loman reacting to the recording. Crap's last tape is so different because what's on the tape is just as crucially vital. And not not more so, I don't think. I, I would never I wouldn't <laughs> give it more than 50%, but I would give right. it a solid 50% to what is going on visually in the present moment of the play, old man crap, listening. These two things share attention and butt heads. Right. Yeah, and and, and you you learn so much more about current... uh, 
old man crap from the recordings as a result of them being played for you. Because you, you don't, I mean, we, we've done our best, I think, to kind of figure out some stuff about old man crap. <laughs> but the vast majority of what we get from exposition is from the tapes. The vast majority of the learning journey that we go on is in the tapes. Um, so so they, they I, I, I agree that more as a matter of principle, I was just about to say maybe even more than 50% worth. Um, but, <laughs> but as a matter of principle, at least 50% of, of the weight of the play lies in the tapes. And so much of the experience of the play is non-textual too, isn't it? It's the silence. It's the moments when he stops. And what happens there is not, interestingly, that is not particularly prescribed by Beckett, who does so much prescription of the action at the beginning of the play, but not so much in these crucial moments. Really, the word that, that this that this version of the play uses is the word broods. Uh, he'll, he'll brew, and this happens both when he's listening to his past self on the recordings and making a recording himself. He stops the recordings, both the playback and the active recording. He stops them, and the word is he broods. And what is happening, what actively is happening in the brooding in terms of the inner self of crap, but also the outer self, the action, we don't know. Beckett doesn't tell us. That is the actor and the director and the production team to work together to tell the story of crap. Right. Again, again it's just like, it's it's not a complete blank slate, but somehow Beckett has managed to be both a prescriptive and an incredibly generous playwright. <laughs> like he's, he's pre prescriptive in ways that um, points you towards the truth that he's trying to tell, but leaves you enough freedom as the actor and the director to find the character for yourself, to allow the character to speak into whatever current moment the character needs to speak into. Um, that being said, I had the thought as I was watching that 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 I don't know how to do this play quite the same way as um, how it is written with the tapes and the reels, especially this, this, this play was written with a tape recorder that had, I mean, I don't even know what it is. Like <laughs> I'm going to try to describe it to you so that all of you out there might know what I'm talking about. Two reels with audio tape on them that you affix to the recording machine. You have to hook them up and you have to start the tape, put the tape through the speaker and then push play on it. There's, that's a lot of action. Right. That's a lot of uh, necessary action, especially if you think that that's not on stage to start with. You got to bring out a lot of pieces to get that to happen. And part of the heart wrenching ness is watching this kind of older man fiddling with the machine, trying to get it to play, throwing the boxes of the reels onto the ground. Um, so, so there's a lot of that sort of action being generated from it. And I, you know, in like 20 years or whatever, that's longer for me, 40 years when I'm the right age to, to play this, this, this character, like me pulling out my iPhone and hitting, you know, play on an old recording is not going to be the same thing. And isn't it interesting that that's inescapable, but that in some ways makes the play... It, very hard to tell the story Beckett wanted to tell because it, it the technology involved is such a crucial piece of it. And here's what I mean. Even right now, um, in fact, a, a theater in Fayetteville just produced this last year or maybe the year before. Even right now, 
if you manage to get a hold of the exact right piece of technology, this old tape recorder, but not like cassette tapes, older than that kind of tape recorder, manage to get one of those, including all the reels you need, you figure out how it works, you use the prop exactly as described, you're no longer telling the same story that Samuel Beckett was telling because that piece of technology is old. No longer is the wonder of a piece of drama about interacting with a recording of yourself, can that, that, it just doesn't have the same reflection because what the technology that you're looking at isn't relatively new or at least relatively newly dramatized. It is old. But you're exactly right. If we use today's newest technology, like in five or ten years, we'll have holograms pretty well figured out, I guess. So (laughs) you hologram yourself or whatever. You know, there's no the the action, all of the mechanics, the clear ways that he has to stick things in things and wrap things and carry the whole unit with things falling all over. And the fact that he has this collection of recordings that take up boxes and boxes, you lose all that. Right. Yeah, no, the, the vernacular is, has shifted so significantly so that it has become a, sort of a, a historical piece. You know, it's like it's like doing, ah, I'll, just, I'll just go with the low-hanging fruit. It's like doing a Shakespeare play and like doing all the, the, the Greek references in a Shakespeare play about the Senate and, and all that. It's the same, same problem that that sort of a play faces is how do you vernacularize this, um, these given circumstances that many people would know about um, when it was produced, but are not so the case right now. And I think there's, I, I, I don't, I don't think that what I'm trying to say is you can't do this play anymore. Um, you just said that a play is, was done near you, of, of, or a production of this play was done and near you. I would direct Craft's Last Tape tomorrow. This is right. a great play. But mm-hmm. the problem of how to deal with the technology shown in the play exists. And I don't think there, the problem is I think that there isn't a good answer anymore. And that's what we've been reflecting on. To just use new technology really violates the spirit of the actions of the show, even while it may capture the theme better. Mm-hmm. But using the spirit of the action and the repetitive mechanization of the action of that old style tape recorder, you don't you don't achieve the same storytelling theme that Beckett was going for, the same experience of how incredible it is to dramatize this experience as you did, you know, all those years ago. Right, right. You know, in in my mind, like the couple, the last vestige of like trying to hang on to this is like VHS tapes or or cassette tapes. You know, there's there's enough of us because this is. I mean, he he he's used this recorder for thirty years, right? Or something that uses the tapes at least for thirty years. So and technology moved slower back then and all all that business. But um, but I I think there are still things that part of part of what is kind of being played with here is is nostalgia, right? Like a little bit of what's being played is like, oh, I remember when I bought that machine back in my, you know, my 30s or whatever and thought I would record myself and for posterity so that when my books are famous, people will know what I thought when I was 30. Um, So so I think part of it is playing on that that shared experience of a lot of people that bought these recorders. So I think part of your job when you do this play is to try to generate that shared experience somehow. How do you how do you key into the psyche of your audience and say, remember when you did this? That's what old man crap is going through right now. Well, it's it's both and it is both the nostalgia of these 
parts of my life are being presented to me in the now that you just described, but it's also the wonder of something new, listening to your own voice tell those stories back at you. And that's the incredible thing that Beckett has captured, that it'd be pretty hard to recapture that in, in the present day. Now, what about his drinking off stage, Jackson? Because this is so fascinating to me. He goes off stage many, 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 many times in the play. You hear the corking noise, the drinking noise comes back on. What is that about? Why not just give him a big bottle of whiskey and a tumbler and have him drink the thing down during the show? That's yeah. what the Eugene O'Neill did in about every play he ever wrote. <laughs> pretty much every play ever, yeah. Even Arthur Miller does it pretty frequently. But yeah, it's yeah, I don't know. I wonder I ah it's it's a little bit of a mystery to me. I wonder if there's something historical about it. I know that just in in reading the history for this play, I know that Beckett had to get his plays past the Lord Chamberlain. And uh even even this play had a lot of things in it, like the story of of the romantic interaction on the boat, he had to like explain it away a certain way to the Lord Chamberlain to get it to play correctly the way that he wanted it to. Um, so I think there's could be some of that in there, but also there is a there's an inferred there's it's a different experience when you're inferring what's happening off stage when you're not seeing it when you when you kind of viscerally hear the sound of a cork being pulled out of a bottle and. I mean, I would imagine the kind of glug, 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 glug sound of it being poured into a glass. Like, that that evokes something in you differently than already the kind of cathartic pity that you're feeling for this man on stage. Um, when he comes back in affected by whatever he's drunk off stage, that catharsis is different than when you see it in front of you. It's a different... It's actually... <laughs> I've, I've wandered my way into a good thought. Um, it's actually the cathartic experience from Greek plays. Um, you never see the tragic hero gouging out their eyes. It always happens off stage. Any sort of violent violence or gore or uh, abuse happens off stage, and you just see the effects of that abuse when they come on stage. And Beckett takes that thought of these horrifying things happening really off stage in two ways, right? In the recordings, they're yeah. not on stage, they're just talked about. That's very Greek, isn't it? The messenger coming to tell the story of what happened. In yeah. this case, the messenger is crap himself on right. his tape recording. So you get that part of it, and you also get the disappearing into the gloom. But but that's And the gloom is what I was about to say, is that Beckett takes that same experience and adds this extra level of the light and darkness metaphor crap surrounded by impenetrable gloom and only this solitary bulb above his desk and old man crap comments on it young man crap comments on it i mean in what is a very short play beckett makes sure you understand that there is something going on with the bulb and the darkness beyond it so you have crap disappear into the dark And he does it several times. He appears from the dark at the beginning. He goes back into the dark to get his tape recorder. He comes back and light and dark, back and forth off stage. And to go into the dark to do this thing that gets him drunker and sadder, this thing that you imagine has gone on his whole life. I mean, that is that that next level of the same metaphor from Greek tragedy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's absolutely playing with with light and dark. Um, he's there's even I in again in researching he's he, someone suggested that he's playing with Manichaeism, which is an ancient religion all about light and dark. Um, and so so th- this this theme of what what is done in the dark affects what happens in the light, and then also. Also, it's a it's a powerful metaphor for loss of memory. This impending kind of dark that is around uh, old man crap as he is grappling with the loss of his memories and the loss of himself. He's he's he returns to this one bulb bathed mo- spot of light to try to hear memories of himself to hold back that darkness. Um, and and but even that's not enough. He has to kind of cope with returning to the darkness and coming back at it again. So one of the other ways that this play is different than the other three plays we've talked about in monologue months is that this is a a fourth wall play. I mean, th- the other three plays, the presence of the audience is a given. Uh, the characters interact with the audience. They are telling their stories to the audience. They are playing offstage focus as they shift between characters. The the audience being there, in all theater, of course, the audience is crucial to the experience, yada, yada, yada. But for <laughs> the way that the story is told and who the actor is telling the story to, the audience and the characters have it. That's a good way to say it, is that the audience and the characters have a relationship. But... Crap sauce tape is not like that. This is a play where the audience for the character is not there. Right. Yeah, we're 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 looking in on the life of old man crap and and uh kind of seeing you know, for for an absurdist play, this is pretty naturalistic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least his 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 actions. You know, the, the setting of the play could be at various degrees of of uh, of absurd or um, uh, ex- like evoking something other than it is. But the actions uh, themselves are pretty pretty much just like I don't get the sense that he's um, doing something that is blowing out his experience or, or, or making his experience seem worse than it is. This seems like the way that the old man crap spends some of his afternoons <laughs> and specifically this one, as we are engaging with him and, and kind of living through like a half hour of his life with him. Yeah. And again, one of the ways that in fact, this play is more similar to some of the plays that we've listened to or, or read is it, it is more like search for signs of intelligent life in the universe in that it being one person is is part of the story right i am my own wife the story is not about there only being one person it's about many people now the storytelling technique is that there's one person. Same with house arrest, right? There's many people. There's nothing about the story itself that necessitates one person. But in Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, the story is this one lady is being zapped with all these different people. That's part of the story framework. And Crap's Last Tape is that way too, right? The the story is about it's only one guy and various versions of himself. Whereas, like, in, in, in some of the other plays, we would say this is a one-person play, and that conjures up all these images of, of what a one-person play is, many characters, flipping between characters, talking to the audience, all that. This play, I, I think we, would, we could turn a couple words and say this is a play about one person. 
And and that that seems to be a little bit more the bent of this play to engage with this one person's life for a short amount of time and uh, and and just kind of share space with them. And what a sad person to what have sad, to spend that absolutely. Much time with. Now uh, it is also the odd experience that in terms of all of Beckett's plays. This is a play where, like, he both ex- admits the existence of love and even perhaps comments that, like, love is one of the more important things in life. Not not really something you find in a lot of Beckett's work. <laughs> so there's that positive aspect of the play that you can at least look at it and know that the playwright feels the fact that love is missing from this man's life. But there's no getting around the fact that the last line of the play is him listening to his recordings, standing alone after this silence has gone on endlessly. And this, I mean, the the, the end of this show is a stroke of genius because Crap has played this tape from when he was 39, this description of this encounter on the boat over and over, but he's always stopped it at the end of the boat encounter. He tries, so that Crap goes on to try to make a recording himself. It doesn't go very well. He ends up just re- trying to uh, reimagine all these different ways he could have lived his life. He stops doing that. He puts the tape back on to listen to this romantic story again. He plays the story again, the boat, looking in her eyes, the sex, all of it. But then he lets the, 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 the tape run on. And it says, here I end this reel, box three, spool five. Perhaps my best years are gone when there was a chance of happiness, but I wouldn't want them back. Not with this fire in me now. No, I wouldn't want them back. Yeah. You wonder if he'd say the same thing right now. That's, I don't know. That, I mean, the, the actor playing crap has, has some work to do. Yeah. I'm not really memorizing because crap doesn't say all that much in the play. Not like, I mean, every other one person show we've talked about, it's a feat just to memorize the thing, just to <laughs> say the number of words that as one performer, you've got to say. Right. And this play, I, I mean, I'm just glancing through it, at least 40 to 50% of the words spoken are recording. Right. So it's not, and it's a short, short play. So it's not like the feat is memorizing, but it is a feat of character work, mm-hmm. of understanding this bizarre, sad old man in a way that you can tell his story to the audience. That's a, that's a lot of work. I, I don't do a lot of acting. There's lots of characters I'd love to play. Crap's not one of them. Too, that's too hard for me. I'd love to direct it and work with a really great actor, but I would not want to play this role. I right. just that's that's above my head in terms of acting. How good you have to be at care? How much? How deeply you have to understand this man? It just is. It's wild. And to act listening for thirty minutes. Yes, like that. That's no small thing to to be there listening to your own voice. Um, and, and deciding how to show that you are listening and that it's affecting you. That's, that's, 
not no small task. <laughs> but if any of you out there have done that task, we want to talk to you about it. This we're we're coming along to the end of our show, and we always like to encourage anyone out there who has had any experience with the play we've talked about. So if if you have listened or seen or been a part of or watched uh, Crap's Last Tape by Samuel Beckett, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you. As you can tell, like this play is like 12 pages long or something like that, and there's still more that we could continue to try to suss out about it. So we'd love to keep talking to you about it. If you want to recommend this play, uh, or this podcast, I mean, this play is a good one to do it on because especially if you're a theater student or active in the theater world, somebody that you know knows this play, has read this play, recommend this episode to them and they can get into the podcast. You can find us at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as where we're hosted at Podbean. If you connect with us on Facebook, that's a really easy way because you'll just get a link to the new episode every Monday when they come out and then the Wednesdays before you you can see what episode is coming up. Folks, this is it. This is the end of monologue. <laughs> monologue month. It's fine. It's just the end of monologue month. We've <laughs> so enjoyed getting to have these conversations around a, a, a genre of theater that is not often, I, at least I've found, not often talked about or theorized about in, in one-person plays. So thank you for coming along for the ride for that. Thank you to all of you who we've gotten the chance to talk to about these plays. And uh, look forward to us coming back again next week, getting back into full-length plays. That's right. Uh, we are returning to our regular variety of programming. The yep. scripts that we talk about next week will have many actors involved. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps less characters, because as we've discovered, right. one actor does not mean any shortage of characters necessarily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Almost certainly less characters. <laughs> so until then, when we're talking about that play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No script the podcast we'll see you